This is episode 50 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Dr. Samuel Hooker and the men who fooled Houdini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode number 50. I can hardly believe it. (laughs) I've made it to 50 podcasts. Wow. And I'm within striking distance of 10,000 downloads. In fact, I'm banking that this podcast will take me over the top. That's 10,000 listens, and I haven't spent one penny on advertising. Not too bad. Now, this next piece may be a little boring, but I have to share some stats with you. The the country with the most listens is the United States, followed by the UK, Canada, and Spain. In the US, the state with the most listens is California, followed by Virginia, New York, and Hawaii. In the last three months, I've suddenly become huge in Nova Scotia, and furthest away it seems, I have quite a few fans in Victoria, Australia. I just picked up three more five-star ratings, putting me at a total of 21. Thank you all for that. And all of that, by the way, goes towards credibility. Some people won't even bother listening to a podcast that has no ratings or has very few. So I'm eager to get more and more as time goes by. But the number of downloads and five stars goes a long way towards helping me. And keep in mind, I do all this myself. I have no assistance. I do all the research, the editing, the script writing, the recording, everything. Uh, Maybe one day I'll get somebody to help me out. But for now, it's a one-man operation. I do want to mention a little bit of news. Last Sunday, David Sandy and Lance Rich did an incredible job with the first ever Magic Collector's Corner Zoom show. And if you missed it, please go to the Magic Collector's Corner Facebook page and join and be part of this Sunday's episode. And they probably have a, um, a replay of last uh, week's as well. I highly recommend it. You're really going to like it. Uh, in the sad news department, I'm sure everyone's already heard, but Norm Nielsen passed away this week. And um, he'd been in declining health. And it was only a couple weeks ago that Lupe had to put him into a home And you could just feel her broken heart in her Facebook posts as she described what she was going through. And, of course, this makes things even worse. It's a really sad time. Sad time for her. Sad time for magic. And Lupe is certainly in our prayers. And and we hope that uh, Norm Nielsen will rest in peace. Let's do something different, by the way, because this is episode number 50. Let's do another contest. I haven't done one of these. I don't think I've done one this season at all. So this will be in celebration of episode 50. And here is the contest. Name the magician who opened for Kenny Rogers and Dottie West in 1979. Once you have an answer, I'll put all the correct uh, entries in a hat and I'll draw one to be the winner, though I have a feeling there may only be one person that gets this right, but we'll see. Um, And I'll announce the winner next month. So one more time, the question is, name the magician who opened for Kenny Rogers and Dottie West in 1979. Oh, and uh, send your answers via email to info at carnegiemagic.com and please put contest 50 in the subject heading. 
And now let's get to today's feature. We begin with what is actually a two-part feature. First, I'll share with you the story of one of the most remarkable and legendary feats in magic uh, from the 20th century. And then I'll be using that story to tie into a second piece about Houdini. So let's start here. Samuel Cox Hooker was born in Brenchley, Kent, England, April 19th, 1864. His first exposure to magic was when his father took him to see the famed Masculine and Cook. He learned plate spinning as well as many other fine magic effects. Plate spinning, by the way, was a feature of John Neville Masculine. But it seemed that magic's hold was overcome by a new interest, and that would be science. In 1883... Hooker won a scholarship in chemistry to the Royal College, and later he received a degree of Doctor of Philosophy in Munich. Dr. Hooker had a successful career working in the sugar beet industry, and then later as a highly respected chemist. But his magic doesn't pick up again until he retired, and it was at this point that his dream would come true. The dream was to create a show or an act that would completely mystify magicians. It all began in his carriage house in New York City. The performances were held on the second floor. A small stage was erected, and there were chairs available for 20 people. The performances were invitation only. Those who attended were a virtual who's who in the world of magic. And they all walked away, puzzled and amazed. The man who put on these shows was Dr. Samuel Cox Hooker, and his show was legendary. Years ago, I remember reading through a copy of Greater Magic and coming upon a description of his show and was wondering what all the fuss was about. Then, in 1993, the Los Angeles Conference on Magic History recreated the show using the original apparatus. In 2007, the conference brought the show back for a repeat performance. I spoke to a few of the people who attended, and the word was that <laughs> most had no idea. I don't think anybody had any idea. Obviously, whatever Dr. Hooker had created was a timeless mystery, just as remarkable today as it was nearly 100 years ago. Both Genie and Magic Magazine did extensive articles on Hooker, and I've pulled some of the information from those sources, as well as a few other places as well. This great mystery that Dr. Hooker created was not a single trick, nor was it a single method. It was uh, numerous puzzle pieces that came together to create what had been called the Hooker Rising Cards, but Dr. Hooker preferred to call his show Impossibilities. The show first began in 1914 in the carriage house behind his home on Renson Street in Brooklyn. I believe the initial show was just a demonstration of his rising cards, but Dr. Hooker's rising cards were unlike anything anyone had ever seen. The show would begin by handing out a houlette for examination. A houlette is a small holder for playing cards. And according to the book Greater Magic, the hooker houlette was made of brass. Next, a new pack of cards was borrowed from a member of the audience. The deck was shuffled and then placed into the houlette. Then any card called for, again, any card called for, would rise from the shuffled pack but that was just the beginning. Next, cards were selected, signed, and put back into the pack, and then put back into the houlette. The selected cards, signed cards, would rise. 
The houlette was moved to a different part of the table to disprove any connection to the table. In fact, the houlette could be handed out for examination over and over again. Finally, a large glass dome was placed over the houlette, and the cards not only rose up like before, but now they floated higher and higher within the glass enclosure. Eventually, all the cards flew from the houlette, and that was the conclusion of the original show. Harry Keller was witness to the show in 1914 when it was in its early stages, and it was clear even then that this was a remarkable feat. September 24, 1916, Harry Keller sent a letter to Houdini inviting him to join Keller for a performance at Dr. Hooker's residence to see the impossibilities. A short time later, Houdini wrote, Regarding last night, you out Hofsenzerd, Hofsenzer. It's pretty clear that Houdini was mystified. And more on that later. In 1918, at the height of the worldwide Spanish flu epidemic, Dr. Hooker came out with the ultimate version of his show, Impossibilities. He added a new feature, a bear head he called Miltiades III. When the show began, the doctor would speak to the bear, and its eyes would open and its head would move. He could ask the bear questions, and the mouth would move in response. According to an article in the San Diego Union newspaper from May 26, 1918, the magicians in the audience seemed fairly unfazed with those antics. But then, the bear head levitated in the air and moved about. Dr. Hooker passed his hands around the floating bear head and then passed a hoop around it. All the while, the bear head, which he called Miltiades, after an Athenian chieftain, continued its facial animations. The newspaper article said the magicians were completely dumbfounded by this. The name, Miltiades, according to the article by Jim Steinmeier in Genie Magazine, April 2008, was inspired by the Athenian general and a children's book from Hooker's youth called The Adventures of Miltiades, Peterkin Paul. So his bear head became Miltiades III. When Keller saw the performance, he related to Dr. Hooker just how amazed he was and that he had no idea how the mystery was accomplished. Dr. Hooker then invited Keller to peer behind the curtain, so to speak, and revealed the workings of this marvel. Keller was so taken with the illusion that he eventually asked Dr. Hooker if he could have it for his own home, according to the book Keller's Wonders by Mike Caveney and Bill Mizell. Dr. Hooker agreed to allow Keller to build the illusion for demonstrations at his home, but swore him to complete secrecy. There was a catch, however. Hooker would not build the effect for Keller. He told Keller he would have to recreate it on his own and not use a magic builder in the process. That meant that Harry Keller had to go off his memory of what he saw and experiment with various things in order to build it for himself. He did begin work on it and hired another mechanic to help, but never completed the work. Magicians who saw Hooker's incredible miracle included Harry Keller, Houdini, Charles Carter, Adelaide Herman, William Hillier, Dr. James Elliott, Guy Jarrett, Theo Bamberg, and many others. In fact, here's a few quotes from them. 
Theo Bamberg said, Believe me, sir, no problem in the art of magic has made such a deep impression upon me than this wonderful device. I still cannot conceive the ingenuity of it. And I fully declare that I esteem this a magical invention as the most perfect and the most incomprehensible trick that I have ever had the pleasure to witness. Nate Leipzig of The Effect said, Mrs. Leipzig and I thoroughly enjoyed the exhibition and were completely mystified. We cannot offer any explanation how it was done. Jean Hugard said, I have seen many of the best feats of noted magicians, but your effects are the nearest approach to real magic in my experience. I would like to offer my thanks to Mr. Mulholland and his able assistant for the masterly presentation of the effects. Frederick Eugene Powell said, I must truthfully say that you have produced what previously I should have said was impossible. Taken all in, you have produced a masterpiece. I was more than pleased. I think I need to say no more. In 1929, Dr. Hooker decided to revive the show, but he felt he was too old at this point to perform, so he taught the routine to John Mulholland and Dr. Shirley Quimby, who presented it for another round of performances. According to Ted Anneman in the Jinx number 87, in 1938, the effect was bequeathed to Mulholland and Quimby. Anneman quotes the Sphinx of September 1936, for performance from time to time as opportunities occur. However, it doesn't appear that it was presented by Mulholland or Quimby after their 1929 run. Their props were given back to the family and ended up in the possession of Hooker's grandson, Robert Davidson. It appears that Davidson was also an amateur magician, and I've come across some books by Slidini that were autographed to Davidson. It appears that Davidson had plans to recreate the Impossibility show at some point, but he struggled in his efforts to restore the effect. So Hooker's grandson sold it to John Gaughan, on the condition he would recreate the performances once the effect was restored. The Hooker Rising card was presented at two different Los Angeles Conference on Magic History. John Gaughan restored the original apparatus, and together with Jim Steinmeier, they did their best to recreate a routine based upon Hooker's work. The original routine, as presented by Dr. Hooker, was somewhere between an hour and 90 minutes. The version presented at the Magic History Conference was 20 minutes. But according to all accounts, the magic of Dr. Samuel Hooker continued to bewilder the best minds in magic of today, just as it had done during magic's golden age. According to the November 1935 issue of the Sphinx magazine, Dr. Hooker, Magic's leading amateur, died at his home in Brooklyn on October 12, 1935, after an illness of two weeks. There was a time when magicians, especially the famous, held their reputations in such high regard they would claim that they could not be fooled by another magician. In fact, to be able to do so was a badge of honor in a lesser-known magician's cap, or top hat, as it were. There's an amazing story of how young Howard Thurston fooled Herman the Great. He fooled him with a rising card effect. Thurston invited a newspaper man to join him on the day he was to present the trick to Herman. 
In a rushed performance, only a few minutes before Herman's show was to begin, Thurston had four cards selected and returned to a pack of cards, and each one, one at a time, floated up and out of the deck. Herman was amazed and said so. The next day, the newspaper had a headline that read, The Man Who Mystified Herman. Thurston, understandably, got really full of himself really fast. His bubble was soon to burst, however, when he met up with Herman the next day, and Herman was incensed over the headline. He felt that he had been used, and he had been. Plus, Thurston had not fooled Herman the Great. He fooled Leon Herman, Alexander's nephew, and Leon was nowhere near the magician that his uncle had been. Back in those days, you sometimes needed a boost, something to give you an edge to break into show business or make a bigger name for yourself in show business. Defeating a rival or besting the number one person was a great way to get publicity. For those interested, the story is well recounted in the wonderful Jim Steinmeier book, The Last Greatest Magician in the World, in Chapter 6. Houdini felt like he was, well, he felt like he was number one in many ways, and in many ways he was. It's said that he made the claim that he couldn't be fooled by a trick if he saw it three times in a row. In Houdini's defense, this is not an unrealistic statement. In magic, we're taught not to repeat a trick. The reason being, after a spectator sees a trick once, they are more likely to catch on to the method with a second viewing. There are exceptions, of course, but when people know you've made a statement like Houdini's, someone is liable to try and prove you wrong. And keep in mind, none of the following stories appear in any of the Houdini biographies, but they all appear in print in other books. By the way, I've already related to you one, the Dr. Hooker rising card story, wherein Houdini was rather complimentary towards Dr. Hooker and offered no possible solution. Though perhaps his comment about out Hofsensering Hofsenser could allude to the notion that Hooker's card rise was mechanical, or it could just mean that it should be held in even more esteem than the one Hofsons are created. I think it's probably the latter. The next story is rather well known in magic lore. The event took place February 6, 1922 at the Great Northern Hotel in Chicago. There was a banquet for the Society of American Magicians and Houdini was the guest of honor. At some point in the evening, Sam Margulies brings Di Vernon over to meet and show Houdini a trick. One article I've read said, Houdini rolled his eyes and reluctantly agreed. The young Di Vernon brought out a deck of cards, shuffled them, and had Houdini remove one card and sign it. Houdini wrote HH on the card. Then Vernon took the signed card, placed it second from the top. Everything was very slow and deliberate. Vernon then turned over the top card, and there was the selected sign card. Houdini was stunned. Di Vernon did the trick again. The second time, Houdini was also surprised. He began to call out possible methods, all of which were incorrect. A third showing, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and seventh, and Houdini was fooled each time. One telling of the story features this addition. Mutual friends seated at the table said, Don't quibble, Harry. You're fooled this time. According to the promotional pieces of Vernon, Houdini finally made the admission and added, 
Vernon is certainly the best man I have ever seen with cards. Thereafter, Die Vernon, who was going by Dale Vernon at the time, used the moniker He Fooled Houdini in all his promotions, quite reminiscent of Thurston's approach with Herman. If you're wondering about sources, I found this story in Genie Magazine, but also in the book He Fooled Houdini by Bruce Servant and Keith Burns, and it's also in other books as well. Here's a story you might not have heard of. In 1907, Houdini and Carl Germain were both in England. Germain happened to run into Houdini at a banquet and decided he wanted to amaze his friend. He then proceeded to present his favorite pocket trick, the term that was used then for close-up magic, The trick was called the spirit writing on cigarette paper. Houdini watched like a hawk, but in the end was amazed by the presentation. Did he fly off the handle or ask that the trick be repeated numerous times? Apparently not. Germain used a somewhat unorthodox method for this one showing, and he felt it best not to share the how with Houdini, who then might have been offended by the ruse. This story comes from Stuart Kramer's book, Germain the Wizard, the Miracle Factory edition. There was also some speculation that Houdini was never in England in 1907. However, it appears that Houdini was in England in 1907 for a short time. In the book, The Great Houdini, His British Tours by Derek Tate, chapter 7 is about Houdini's brief time in England in 1907. Mr. Tate even mentions that Houdini wasn't thought to have made any appearances that year, but it turns out he did. Now, some still dispute this, and that's okay. I think given the fact that Houdini was doing a gig for the Sheffield Empire Palace, and he had been there a previous time, that's proof enough for me that he was in England in 1907. Plus, Germain was in England, and claims to have showed Houdini a trick in England at that time. The final story comes from The Odds Against Me, the autobiography of John Scarney. This story takes place at Hornman's Magic Shop in New York City. Some of the players involved in the story include Frank Ducrow, Daisy White, Jim Collins, Houdini, and a young John Scarney. Mr. Scarney had come to the shop to take lessons in magic from Ducrow. However, upon his first lesson in card magic, he asked Mr. Ducrow about midway during the lesson if maybe he could skip cards and learn something else. And Ducrow, curious, asked why, and Scarney told him already knew cards pretty well. Ducrow asks to see something, figuring they'll see some rather simplistic tricks. But to his amazement, he is dumbfounded by what he sees. He calls Daisy White into the room. She worked as a demonstrator at the shop, and Scarney repeats the tricks and fools them both. Now, Ducrow has been around magic his whole life. He wants to know where Scarney learned these tricks. And Scarney tells him he learned them from card mechanics. It's likely the first time Ducrow had ever heard this term. He suggests that Houdini, who was in town performing and habitually stopped by the shop, should see these tricks. So Ducrow set up a meeting, and a few days later, young John Scarney gets to meet the great Houdini. Houdini showed up at Hornman's shop along with Jim Collins. He is greeted cordially by everyone and then introduced to the kid. According to the Scarney story, Houdini took out a beat-up deck of cards and started to do some manipulations and asked Scarney if he could do those. 
Scurney was about to when Ducrow interrupted him and said, that's easy for Johnny, but it's not what I wanted you to see. And then encourages the kid to show Houdini the same tricks from a few nights earlier. The first trick he does is a signed card to pocket, which catches Houdini by surprise. In fact, most, if not all the tricks, amazed Houdini. Scarney could tell by Houdini's reaction that he'd been fooled multiple times, but didn't really come out and say so. Instead, he invited Scarney to come to the theater and see the show, and then wanted to have him come back to the dressing room so he could show Bess some of these clever gambling-style tricks. John Scarney went on to become a regular at Hornman's, and quite popular among the magicians in New York City. So popular that Frank Ducrow eventually suggested to Carney that he use the tagline, The Magician Who Fools Magicians. Now here's my take on all this. So here, here we have four stories, four different stories, all about Houdini being fooled, and they all have different endings. In one, Houdini is livid. In another, there's no mention of Houdini's temper flaring. In fact, Germain mentions that he purposely did not share the secret so as to avoid that potential disaster. And then the third and fourth uh, instances, Houdini is fooled and is very cordial. Technically, that's the first and fourth, but anyway. Do I believe the stories? Yep, I believe all four took place. Do I believe they happen the way they're told? Not necessarily. Vernon made no bones about not liking Houdini. His feeling was Houdini was a bad magician and escapes were not magic. So I tend to think there's a bit of anti-Houdini bias that creeped into that story. Do I think Vernon fooled Houdini? Yes, I do. Vernon was a revolutionary card man. He learned all the slights of Erdnays and, like John Scarney, new methods used by gamblers and perfected them. In this case, Vernon was using a specialized card created by Theodore Deland, and actually it had been previously invented by Johann Hofzinser, but Theo Deland was not aware of this when he came out with his version. So I do believe that the story is true, but I tend to think there might be a bit of embellishment along the way. For example, I've seen the dates listed by Vernon as 1919 and 1922, so something's wrong there. It was definitely 1922. The quote where Houdini supposedly admits defeat and calls Vernon the greatest man with cards he's ever seen, I don't know if I believe that. I think that was made up for promotional purposes. In fact... Vernon even says so on page 131 of Die Vernon, A Magical Life. Harry would never admit that anyone could fool him, so I don't believe that Houdini said that he did. In addition, if you've ever read Eliot's Last Legacy, Houdini felt, at least in 1923, that the two best card men in the country were Dr. James Eliot and himself. No mention of Vernon. As for the Germaine story, yes, I believe that one also. I believe it played out uh, pretty much as he described it. The one thing I left out when describing the story was the unorthodox move Germaine used and accomplished to make the trick happen, which was why it fooled Houdini. If he had used his regular method, Houdini would likely have not been fooled. In the end, Germaine didn't go around bragging that he had fooled Houdini afterwards, as Vernon had done. 
The final Scarney story is my favorite, I think. In his biography, Scarney describes seeing Houdini's show for the first time, and he's mazed by it. He clearly looked up to Houdini. Unlike the Vernon story, Houdini didn't lose his temper. He actually watched the magic for 20 minutes and then invited Scarney to the theater so that he could show Bess. No doubt that was also so Houdini could see the tricks again. But this event was less adversarial. The Vernon event, the whole I can't be fooled if I see the trick three times, sets up more of a contest and pits Vernon against Houdini or vice versa. Incidentally, I do believe that this statement about Houdini bringing up a, um, a beat-up or well-worn deck of cards, I think that's probably true. That was from the Scarney story. And I don't think it was an intended as any sort of insult towards Houdini. Sure, Houdini could afford a new deck of cards, but Houdini's card act was mainly a manipulation act, and one of the keys in card manipulations are softer cards. There are techniques magicians use to make cards softer in order to manipulate them. Today, it's easy to purchase cards that are already softer and ideal for manipulations, but this was not always the case. So I do believe Houdini carried this worn deck of cards, which made his manipulations easier. And it also makes sense. I can also add that a lot of old-timers had this I-can't-be-fooled attitude for whatever reason. I personally love to be fooled. I'm not fooled often, though, but that's because I've been in magic for a long time. If someone fools me with great magic, I love it. I also don't think of it as being fooled, either. I think that term has a negative connotation, like making a fool of someone. I prefer the term being amazed. But in the 20th century, they were not out to amaze. They were out to fool. And that, my friends, is going to do it for episode 50 of the Magic Detective Podcast. I do want to mention again the contest for this month. Here, once again, is the question. Name the magician who opened for Kenny Rogers and Dottie West in 1979. I will put all the correct entries into a hat and draw one out to be the winner. Uh, you can send your entries to info at carnegiemagic.com and please put contest 50 in the subject heading. The winner will receive an authentic piece of magic memorabilia. Once again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please like the podcast in whatever way your podcast provider allows. If you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please consider giving me five stars and a review. Those are immensely helpful uh, in helping me gain a larger audience in the future. The Magic Detective Podcast, by the way, can be heard on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Himalaya, Listen Notes, and pretty much anywhere that features podcasts. For now, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thanks for listening to the Magic Detective Podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.